Today, I'll be reading from Romans chapter 8, verses 20 through 30, and that is on page 944 in the Black Bibles around the room. And if you do not own a Bible, this is our gift. Please take it home and read it. When I am finished with the verses, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and in response, we'll say, thanks be to God, which is just an exclamation of excitement of how much of a blessing it is to have God's word. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And for those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, church. Dear God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you that you are a God at work in us and through us. Lord, Help us to have faith, even in the dark times and the hard times, that all things are working for your glory and for our good. We ask that you open our hearts and our ears to your truth, Lord. Silence the stress of our own plans and help us to surrender to you. Lord, we ask that the Holy Spirit would guide Pastor Shea as he speaks, and that through his message, we would be drawn near to you. In your name, amen. But it's not on. (laughs) How's everybody doing this morning? Good. It is good to see all of you this morning. Uh, I know I get up here every time I come up here and I say, man, it's good to be with you guys this morning, but I really truly mean it. Like, Delivering the word of God, uh, it is a blessing for me. And on behalf of the pastors, like we love all of you. Uh, It it is so good um, to read through the scriptures, uh, to tell you how much God loves you, to tell you what his son did on your behalf. Uh, It is a blessing for us. Um, This morning, we're going to be continuing through uh, Romans chapter 8, which we have affectionately called the greatest chapter in the Bible. And after reading through it and sitting up under the preaching of it, man, it has refreshed my soul so much, uh, seeing what God does um, through his son and through his, through his redeeming sacrifice. Uh, and today is no different. Even though the subject matter is probably going to be a little heavy this morning, uh, God is still so good. Uh, and I'm going to do my best to smile while I'm up here. My wife told me, make sure you smile while you're telling people uh, all the hard stuff you're going to tell them. Uh, So y'all keep me accountable. Just smile at me. I'll smile back at you. It'll work out. We'll get through this. Um, As we get started, I want to give you guys a couple of stories uh, about suffering. That's that's what we're talking about this morning. Suffering. (laughs) I'm trying my best. Uh, Mutumo Kamide. He and his family were the only Christians in one village in this area of Ethiopia. Uh, They tried to get along with their community. Uh, Mutumo would... Uh, explained to his fellow villagers that he couldn't participate in their pagan rituals because of his Christian faith. Uh, But his community wasn't very receptive to that. Uh, And his efforts to share his faith 
were met with increasing threats and suspicion. And so in August 2013, those uh, threats and insults came to a head as the village men broke into Matumo's home, dragged him outside, and stabbed him to death while his son was clinging to his leg. Shortly after his death, the Christian organization came to his village uh, to help his family through this time of struggle. And the man's son, uh, Washun, told the workers, my father used to buy me clothes. He used to take me to church and allow me to help him at work. I loved my father. My father loved me. He was my protection. I was totally shocked when my dad was killed in front of me. But God comforted us and told us that he will be the father to each of us. Bachu, Matumo's daughter, said, Since my father's death, God has spoken more and more to, more and more to us and assured us, assured us that he loves us. God comforts us. God told us he will be our dad. He'll show us his goodness even in the midst of all this persecution. I want to share another story of suffering. This one comes uh, from right over the mountain uh, in California, last year's devastating forest fires. One lady, as she watched the approaching flames from a nearby town coming toward her own home, she said that the urgency and heartbreak of these California fires should issue us a wake-up call. This world is full of suffering, but God has a new world in store that will have no remnants of pain or crying. But we're not there yet as these fires and hurricanes painfully remind us. One of her friends ended up asking her, aren't you scared? She said, I'm not scared of these fires, but thinking about how quickly life can be over makes me scared for my family of friends who don't know Jesus. Suffering. We go through a lot of suffering in this world. And people suffer through a lot of different things. People suffer through loss of employment, postpartum depression, unwanted homosexual attraction, Addictions of all kinds, infertility, natural disasters, persecution, bullying, depression, obesity, fear, guilt, shame, poverty, hunger, uncertainty, anger, loneliness, inadequacy. I could go on and on about the things we suffer through in this life. But as we'll talk about today, the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to come. Romans up to this point, it's been a roller coaster of emotions from the Apostle Paul. He starts off talking about how everybody falls short of the glory of God and no one is going to escape from the wrath of God. Welcome to church. (laughs) Then he goes through this thing, but he says, but that through Christ and his atoning sacrifice, we now have peace with God. We have freedom from the law and its condemnation. And we now have a new life with the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And that we, we, we can now make it. We can now thrive with the Holy Spirit living in us. And then we come to our passage today and we see Paul saying, all things, whether they're good or bad, gives us, I'm sorry, works out in the end to glorify Christ because he has called, foreknown, predestined, conformed, justified, and glorified his people. All those things we can hope for in Christ. As we look at our passage today, it gives us hope not just for a future time when Christ will come to renew all things. It gives us a, a, a hope for our present lives as he continues to show us his love, even through the midst of suffering through this life. So I want, I want to hip you guys to something that we as pastors do. Uh, you got to watch us. We're tricky sometimes. We, we try to come up with like little hooks to get you guys to remember our sermons throughout the week. 
Like we're we're sneaky, man. Like we'll try to make little rhymes and stuff. Don't let us like pay attention to us. I'm I'm not gonna do that this week. Uh, this week, my main point is going to come straight out of the text, and it actually comes from verse 18, because looking at this passage, it's Paul talking in one continuous thought. My main point to you today said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. I know it's long. Don't try to memorize it. Well, try to memorize it. That'd be cool. <laughs> What are these glories being revealed to us? What promises are so great that we can look past the suffering that we're going through right now and cling to the glories that are to come? Can we experience anything now or do we have to wait for a future time that might for us? And this is the Apostle Paul, right? The Apostle Paul was a person who knew what it was like to suffer in the faith. If you know Paul's story, this dude was blinded by God. He he got shipwrecked three times. He was thrown out of cities, bitten by a snake, spent years in prison. He was almost beat to death a few times, all for the sake of telling people how good Christ is. So when we hear Paul saying that that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us, our ears should perk up a little bit. Like, what kind of super juice do I need to be on to have that kind of faith? I mean, do we need one of those Jack LaLanne uh, power juicers? Do I need a George Foreman grill to lock in the juices so I can, like, what do we need? No, man, we need to see Christ in the scriptures. We need to see Christ pouring out his love for us. We need to see, like, even in this passage, that God loves us. We can see in this passage that even though we're going through suffering, that we will persevere. And then we need to see that even the bad things that we go through in this life are used by God for his glory. That's my, that's my three points, that God loves us, that we will persevere, and that even the bad things are useful by God. So let's jump into that, right? We're actually going to uh, jump into verse 29 and come back to verse 28 later. Look at your Bibles. Verse 29 says, For those who he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So right off the bat, let me address these two, uh, these two trigger words, foreknowledge and predestination. Uh, a lot of people, they came to me, they were like, oh, man, you're going to have a hard time with this one. Um, but this is, this is probably the best news that I've read in my Bible in a long time. The foreknowledge and predestination of God. And if you're not familiar with these terms, these, these terms are linked to God's salvation for his people. Like, how does God save people? Is it, is it mostly God doing all the work? Is it, is it people and, and their efforts and they meet God halfway? How is it that people are saved? And people have been debating these things for centuries. How, do, how does it work out? What does the foreknowledge of God mean? What does it mean that we're predestined by God? Let's start with the foreknowledge of God. Uh, first, actually, let me start off with what it's not. Um, it's not to just simply know something beforehand. It's not a, an intellectual exchange. Uh, some people, they approach the foreknowledge of God and they say that God looked out from eternity past, looked through the annuals of time, saw those people that were going to end up choosing him anyway, and then rewarded them with salvation. But there's a problem with that. That means that God is rewarding us for good behavior. That means that God is giving us Payment for services due. You guys, are, do you guys remember your first job? I, mine was mine was at Little Caesars, uh, and it took me a long time to eat a Little Caesar again. It took like it took years. 
But you remember getting that first paycheck and you're like, what is this? And who is this person that's taking half my check? It's, it's, not God, it's not that God owes us anything. If this is true, uh, God would owe us our salvation for our faith. But here's what the Bible, the Bible paints the picture of God's people as blind, deaf, and dead by nature. Here's what I know about blind people. They don't see things. Deaf people don't hear things. Dead people don't do jack. It's impossible for people to do anything pleasing to God unless God first gives them sight, hearing, and life. I loved, I loved my grandma. My grandma died a few years back. My grandma basically was the person who raised me uh, for, the, for the majority of my life. And so going to her funeral, it, it was tough, and I struggled through it for a long time. Um, but at my grandma's funeral, if my grandma had to set up and start doing some stuff, that, that's a different kind of event. That people don't do things. That people definitely don't do things that are alive. So how can people choose God if they're already dead? So here's what the foreknowledge of God actually is. It is, every time you hear the word no in the Bible, most of the times you hear the word no, it's always in an intimate setting. It's, it, it, it draws this picture of, of intimacy and closeness and love. And so the foreknowledge of God is God's pre-love before they did anything for his people. God loved us before the foundations of the world. And we can, we can take this throughout the Bible, right? We can look at a passage like Genesis 4, when, when the Bible says that uh, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and they conceived and bore a son. And so if we, if we take that word no and we just apply it like as an intellectual exchange, here's how it would go. Adam, you know, he lights a campfire. He gets one of the zebras to, to start singing some Barry White. And he, he, turns, he turns to Eve and says, so what's your favorite color? No. That's not how this goes. He, he, he knew his wife. We know what that means. He was, he was intimate with her. He wanted a relationship with her. They knew one another on an intimate setting. That's what it means to be loved by God. God loved us since before the foundation of the world. He didn't just look out of time and, and just know our names. He knew us. He wanted an intimate relationship with us. That's what it, knows, what it means to be full, pre-loved by God. And out of his, his foreknowledge of us, out of his pre-love for us, he also predestined us. Again, let me start with what predestination is not as we talk about predestination. A lot of times in predestination, people fall into one or two ditches, right? On one side, you got this thought that since God um, predetermined everything I'm going to go through, since he made all the choices on my behalf, uh, I don't have to do anything. God, God orders my life. Uh, so why would God blame me for how messed up I am? It's fate that I end up this way. Right? So you got, you got that side that sometimes people fall into that ditch. And then you got this other ditch that people say, but God foreloved me so much that he would never override my own free will. And so I'm just going to reject this whole predestination thing altogether. But both are ditches to what predestination actually is. And even though our, our, our human brains have a hard time reconciling the two, how can both be true both at the same time? God says, no, they're both true equally. Matter of fact, you ask a guy like uh, Charles uh, Spurgeon, he would say this, and his quote is going to be up here. 
It says, you asked me to reconcile the two, talking about the sovereignty of God, God being in charge of all things and man's responsibility. He says, you asked me to reconcile the two. I answer, they don't want any reconcilement. I never tried to reconcile them to myself because I can never see a discrepancy. Both are true. No two truths can be consistent. What you have to do, I'm sorry, that's funny. What you have to do is believe them both. It's like, thanks a lot, Spurgeon. <laughs> I know it's a hard thing to do. I, I know for us, they seem like two different things. But God's predestination does not allow us to function as robots. Nor can we tell God no when he tells us to do something. It's not possible. If you, if you think that's true, ask Jonah how that worked out. So what is God's predestination? It is God's loving decision before the foundations of the world to choose or elect particular people into his family. That's what God's predestination is. And we're, we're not unfamiliar with this. Y'all, y'all remember as kids, like you used to like walk up to the park and you're, you're with all your friends, right? Because you know, like if the, the three or four of you guys get together, you're going to dominate everybody that's at the park, whether it's football or kickball or basketball or, or hopscotch, whatever you would play as kids. You know, like, because they're on your team, like, everything's going to work out great. But this is how I know, like, that God is so big and so loving because we choose the best, right? We choose the people that can run the fastest and jump the highest and are the smartest so they can outsmart everybody else. But God, God is not like that. God chooses the the kid with asthma and allergies. (laughs) God chooses the kid with, like, Coke bottle bifocals. God chooses the kid that doesn't even know how to play the game. The Bible says that God takes the shameful things of this world, the foolish things of the world, to shame the wise. That is good news for us. That means we don't have to try to perfect ourselves for God. God loves us as we are. We're the kid with asthma. (laughs) Trust me, I would not have chosen God unless he chose me first. And I know some of you have the same stories. I I was doing great without God, I thought. Until God woke me up and showed me the truth. Showed me how much he loves me. But he didn't just, he didn't just do that willy-nilly, right? He didn't just choose me for no particular purpose. The Bible here says that he chose us for a particular purpose. The first one is that so that we can be conformed to the image of his son. Dr. Eric Mason, I like what he had to say about this. He says, uh, God's design, his divine intent is for those who are in Jesus to look like Jesus. God wants us to look like his son, his, his, his character, his faith, his love for the father. The Bible calls this the process of sanctification. That each, each bout of suffering we go through, each, each time that we're faced with a tribulation in this world, that we're being conformed more and more into the image of Christ. It also says that uh, another reason that we were saved was so that Christ can be the firstborn over the brethren. And so the firstborn kind of brings to mind this notion that, uh, that you're, you're born into a family. And so when when we are adopted by God, when we're brought into his family, we turn around and we point to Christ and call him the firstborn, the most important, the preeminent. Church, we were saved so that we can make Christ the most high. God didn't make us his own people just to be his favorites and brag to all our friends about how we're not going to hell. 
He saved us so that we can be witnesses to a dark world, pointing people to the marvelous light of Christ. That's why we were saved. And these, these, these terms, this, this uh, foreknowledge of predestination, these aren't just lofty theological terms that don't matter much to our daily lives. This is the way that God expresses his love for his people. It's the only way we're saved because we wouldn't have been able to choose God on our own. We see from this passage that the only way someone is divinely predestined by God is out of his affection and love for them. It's not because of anything you did on your own. It's not because God owes you for, for good behavior. It's because God loved you since before time began and wants to draw you into his family as his adopted child. You want to know why the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that does to be revealed to us? It's because God expresses his, predetermining, his predetermined love for us by foreknowing and predestining us. And when we understand this great love, when we really start to, to feel it, that when we sing, like little kids sing those songs, Jesus loves me, this I know because the Bible tells me so. I mean, it's simple for kids. Jesus loves me. When we start to understand this and feel it, we see that it's God is going to help us persevere. That's my second point, right? Let's dive back in to verse 30. It says, and those who he predestined, he also called. Those who he called, he also justified. Those who he justified, he also glorified. So we already covered this, this, this predestination of God, God loving us since before time began and predetermining us to look like his son. So what is it to be called by God? It's this, it's this thought of being drawn out of something, to be taken out of one state and be placed into another state. Not like California, Nevada, like dead and alive, right? How unloving would it be for God to tell us, man, I have loved you since the foundations of the world. I have, I have predetermined that you're going to be in my family and then step back and said, you, but you go figure it out on your own. That would be probably the most unloving thing that God could do. But the Bible here says that God stepped in and took it even a step further and says that he, not only did he pre-love us and predestine us, he also called us out of the state we're in and placed us in a new one. It reminds me of uh, the story of Lazarus. You guys heard this story before. Uh, Lazarus was one of Jesus' best friends, uh, and he died. It was dead for a few days, and they, they placed him in a tomb and, and wrapped him up, mummified him and stuff. And uh, Jesus gets to the gravesite and tells the people to open, open the cave door where he's at. And they're like, Jesus, it, it's going to be funky in there, man. Like, I don't, think you want us to, I don't think you want us to open that up. And Jesus is like, no, for real, roll the stone away. And so they open it up, and sure enough, it's like Parliament and the Funkadelic in there. I mean, it's like teenage boy gym socks, like... It's, it's, it's just funk, just rolling out of the cave, right? But, but Jesus calls out to Lazarus, and he says, Lazarus, come out of there. Calls Lazarus out of death into life. That's what it means for us to be called by God, that we are called out of our dead, blind, and deaf state into the newness of life that we find in Christ. God's predestination through the proclamation of the gospel draws God's elected people to himself. Then they can, they, can, uh, it, they can respond through the power of faith that God gives them. 
The Bible also says that, that we, not only did he call us, but he also justified us. Because of Christ's sacrifice, the, the pre-love and predestination by God are put into action as God calls us out of our blind, deaf, and dead state and declares that we have a right standing in front of God. All this is based on this truth that we were once separated from God, living a life that was morally opposed to him. The Bible calls this spiritual death or sin. We were living in a sinful state. But when Christ was put to death, when he arose three days later, three days later, he gave us the ability to be united with him. He would take our spiritual death for himself and give us his eternal life. He would take our guilty verdict in the face of God and give us his innocent one. That's what it means to be justified before God. And we're confident when we look at this because Christ is the one who's doing all the work that Christ will see our salvation through all the way to completion. Paul says in verse 17 that if if we share in the sufferings of Christ, we will also share in his glory. And Paul is essentially building on this point here because he's using the past tense of this word glorified, right? That because God pre-loved us, predestined us, called and justified us, it's as good as done that we get to see God's glory when all things end. It's as if it already happened for those who are in Christ. Christ is doing all the work from our initial salvation through our sanctification all the way through to being ultimately glorified by God. That's why we can stand confident with Paul and say that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing with the glories that are being revealed to us. Because the God who spoke all things into existence, the God who's holding like life itself together just through speaking it together, who gives his adopted children equal standing with his own son, we get to share in the inheritance of Christ. It's God that we get at the end of all things. It's Christ that we get when we get to see him. Because these things are true, we can now look at life through a new lens. And see, even the bad things we go through are useful to God for his glory. That's my final point. Let's look at verse 28. It says that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. I kind of want to break that verse out a little bit. And we know, like we already kind of covered that. We, we just have this, we have this not just intellectual knowledge, but we can feel it in our heart and our soul. We have just, just this intuitive thing that we just know. You know how you just know something? We know it. We can feel it. I had this conversation with my daughter the other night. Um, it, was, it was bedtime. We were praying and stuff. And I'm like, baby, how can, I, how can I pray for you? And she said, daddy, how, how do I know that I'm saved? How do I know that Jesus really loves me? I don't know. I don't, I don't feel God. I can't hug him like I can hug you. And it broke my heart. Like, <laughs> I'm not a crier. She almost got me. She's almost getting me right now. Uh, and it broke my heart, not just because this is my baby girl. Um, but I realized that there's some of you who are asking the same question. And it breaks my heart. How do I know God loves me? How do I know for sure if he can't just hug me? If I can't can't crawl up in his lap and him tell me he loves me, how do I know that I'm going to be saved? 
And I'll tell you guys, just like I told her, the very fact that you're even wrestling with that question means the Holy Spirit is already doing the work within you. God has already predetermined that he loves you. So we know it. We can feel it inside as things are working around. And we know that all things are going to work together for good. And this good, it's not that, it's, it's not that God is working for our temporary material benefit. It's not like if you buy a whole bunch of lottery tickets, you're like, but I'm a Christian, so I know I'm going to hit this joint because all things work together for good. God's going to bless me. Oh. God is not at work for your personal comfort. The things that are working together for good is Christ getting the glory for all things that we do. That is the good that we get to receive. When, when Christ is lifted up as most high, we receive the benefits. And so we see that the suffering we go through, we have this internal, inexplicable confidence that even our present sufferings that we're going through are going to be used by God for his glory. Things like cancer. Cancer can be to Christ's glory. As a person is, is sitting in the hospital going through chemo treatments, and they are crying out for God to save them. And people are coming to their hospital room, their community group, and they're coming and praying with them. And the the doctors and the nurses are hearing all this praying and singing and people glorifying God. And they say, I don't know what's happening there, but it's different. And then if by the grace of God, that person walks away uh, from, from the doctor and the doctor says, but you are now cancer free. Guess who gets the glory? Christ gets that glory. And the doctor says, something inexplicable just happened. We didn't do it. Something else did it. We can glorify Christ. Bullying. Bullying can glorify Christ. There are kids right now who are going through just being bullied every single day. That as soon as they walk off the school bus, the assault starts immediately. All throughout the day, they're just feeling this assault from their peers that they can't even go to lunch. Sometimes they even have to eat in the bathroom because they're too embarrassed to eat with their friends. But as the rest of the students see you, instead of reacting to the bullying, they see you sit down and pray for that person. Christ is glorified. And they say, well, that's different. Maybe I should try that. Struggling through addictions can glorify Christ. Unemployment and lack of transportation can glorify Christ. As you reach out to your community group or those Christian friends around you say, but I ain't, got a, I ain't got a way to get to work. Can you help me? And by the grace of God, they rush to your aid. Christ is glorified. Wildfires, hurricanes, earthquakes can glorify Christ. Pastors, shepherding our honorary sheep can glorify Christ. Moms, changing that one last poopy diaper, because you know that boy know how to go to the bathroom by himself. (laughs) And if he poops on himself one more time, changing that last poopy diaper can glorify Christ. By the grace of God, he is still alive. (laughs) But this is the hope that we get to rest in, right? That we remind ourselves of every single day that for those who love God, 
All things work together for good because the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's coming to us. And that God is showing us in each and every suffering, instance of suffering that we go through. This is limited, right? This is limited, it says, to those who love God or those who are called by God. And so this is a calling for you who don't love God. Doesn't your life feel like a hot mess? Does every attempt to solve life's problems on your own just go horribly wrong? Amen. Do you feel in your particular instance of suffering some days that it is so deep that you don't know if you're going to see the light of day tomorrow? Really and truly. Come to Jesus. God loved you. God loved you since before time began. God predestined you to hear this sermon today so that you can come to him. You don't have to wait till tomorrow. You can surrender your life to him today because he's loved you. He's waiting for you. Because of Christ's sacrifice, because of his death on the cross and the resurrection from the grave, we now have a future hope and a present assurance. All the suffering that we face in this world, the the persecution, the, the loneliness, the depression, the addictions, the disaster, the poop. <laughs> All those things pale in comparison to the hope to come. And, listen to this church, and because you were pre-loved, predestined, called, justified, and glorified by God, we now get to experience the closeness of the Almighty and eagerly anticipate the transformation of all things. And, check this out, church, and when Christ ascended back to heaven, it's not like he left us on our own. He gave us his Holy Spirit to be with us in every instance of that suffering, conforming us more and more to the image of his Son. He said, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. You are mine, and I love you. It's like that Michael Jackson song. You're not alone. I'm here with you. Though we're far apart, I'm always in your heart. The biggest thing I want you to take away from this passage today is the same thing that Jesus, speaking through the Apostle Paul, wants you to take home, and that's we have a present and a future hope in Christ. Jesus promised in the book of John that we're going to see all kinds of suffering in this world. But that to take hope and rest in the peace of Christ because he has overcome those things. Take hope, saints. Your father loves you. Loved loved you before even anything began. And definitely before you ever deserved it. He has sent his son to save you, to to call you out of your dead state and give you his righteousness. He has given you his Holy Spirit to empower you, to conform you more and more to the image of his son. And when we're faced with the trials and tribulations of this world, we remember that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glories being revealed to us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, thank you for your word. Um, I I, I can't even imagine what life would be like if I couldn't hope in you. Um, 
you give us hope, even in the presence of suffering, that we have a, a glorious hope waiting for us. The fact that you have pre-loved us, that you have predetermined uh, that you want us to look like your son, uh, just, just shouts out to us your love for us. There's, there's no bigger act of love that you can give us, God, other than sending your own son uh, to die on the cross for our behalf. Thank you, God, for all the glories that you give us. Uh, help us take this, this hope and these glories throughout the week, God. Uh, pierce them deep within our hearts and remind us of them every time uh, life tries to knock us down. We love you, God. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.